0: Liberty dot It's good for you and it's good for me Just Liberty dot Just Liberty dot
1: Hi, this is Amanda Marzura. An East Texas man was arrested after taking an electric cart from Walmart and then driving it on a state highway out of town. Scott, what do you think was going on?
2: This whole thing has gotten blown out of proportion. For starters, there's a big sign at the Walmart that says you can use these things for free. And I wasn't stealing the darn thing, I was on my way to race a guy with a riding lawnmower.
1: So lawnmower, electric car drag racing is always a good thing to do on a state highway.
2: That's that's exactly right, you've got it. The real tragedy is that now we'll never know who would have won. Yeah, because the
1: the, the great debate lives on.
2: It lives on, and, and, and we'll always wonder, I promise you. Hello boys and girls, and welcome to the October 2017 edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, whose day job is Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to do on the podcast today?
1: I'm looking forward to talking about police unions and hearing what Samson Youngway has to say on the topic.
2: All right, me too. First up, though, between Black Lives Matter activists upset about police misconduct and conservatives concerned about budget-busting pension deals. Police unions have come under fire in 2017, perhaps more than any time in recent memory. So we thought it worth delving a little more deeply into a new book co-authored by one of the leaders of the Texas police union movement, Ron Lord, who for many years led the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, and today is a freelance labor consultant for police unions. In particular, Chapter 11 of his book, gives police union leaders advice on how to deal with critical incidents like controversial shootings or beatings that are caught on camera. They suggest police union leaders wrap themselves in the flag, blame victims of police misconduct for their plight, and drag out the process as long as possible, hoping the public will forget. Mandy, what did you think of his advice?
1: You know, it's hard to wrap it up into like a single thing. I think that if you were really to take a look at his advice as a whole, I think a lot of it makes sense. I mean, where he sort of goes off the rails a little bit in terms of like what we would want of a police union is that he really is advocating for blaming the victims like beyond the scope of their own responsibility. That's right. And, and, and that, that's where it gets crazy. But one of the more like impressive things, I think about this that, that you and I have talked about in the past is, you know, his first rule is do not defend the indefensible this idea that police unions stand to gain when they don't defend someone who's engaged in intentional misconduct.
2: Right. Well, I have to say that fascinated me because the truth is that historically police unions in Texas have defended anybody and everybody, no matter what they did. And even the most egregious cases, the police unions would come out and go balls to the wall to defend them for whatever had happened. And so this is actually very interesting advice to me because the people at the combined law enforcement associations of Texas, where he used to work or the other big police unions have not always reacted that way. His example actually gave a case study where a police union had thrown an officer under the bus instead of defending him. And he'd gone ahead and got fired and the police union got good publicity. Well, I'm not sure that's actually what the rank and file of the union really are looking for. So it was interesting to me to see him give that advice. But you're right. Some of the other things that he mentioned were were pretty outrageous. Why don't you read the subheads in that chapter? Because they're really quite quite alarming.
1: <laughs> so, so after, you know, do not defend the indefensible. He also says, redirect the message, wrap yourself in the flag. Remind the public who the real bad guys are and pray that there are some. <laughs> um, educate the public about the hazards of the job. Time heals all wounds. Public trust is key, and you cannot control the actions of your members 24 7. I mean, there's a lot to work with here, right? You know, obviously, the, the subheading remind the public of who the real bad guys are and pray that there are some. On the one hand, that's awful. Right. That, you know, it's trying to respin it. But even there, he's acknowledging that the officers might not always be right.
2: Right. There's an hilarious section in there where he announces if it turns out that the people who are the victims of misconduct are a carload of preachers. Go back to the recommendation to wrap yourself in the flag. (laughs) Yeah. That's the.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There will be no good in pursuing this. But, you know, in some ways, it's sort of interesting because I think that his recommendations kind of acknowledge that defending the conduct of someone who has gone outside the scope of their responsibilities and has harmed someone long term is not in the interests, the collective interests of law enforcement.
2: Right. You said to me earlier right. that this was really kind of similar to how defense attorneys approach defending their client. Maybe you find someone else to blame. Maybe you minimize your, your culpability. I, I, I,
1: I, I, I did not say find someone else to blame amongst the, lo- the top things that you do. I, I take issue with that, but the, also this idea though, that like time heals all wounds, that there is this idea sometimes that cooler heads prevail with the passage of time and that nothing good necessarily happens fast in a criminal case. So it's okay to have the case linger. Sometimes that might be in your client's interest, but also maybe in the non-death penalty context, but that sometimes it's not in your client's interest to take everything to the mat, which resonates with his first rule that sometimes what you might be doing is trying to figure out the best way to negotiate a settlement and that it- It's not about going to trial.
2: Right. Well, what I was interested in more in the defense attorney analogy, and I'm sure I did overstate it, Mm -hmm. but what I was more interested in, in in that analogy was, to me, especially in Texas, where most of our police unions do not have contracts. We have a few, like in Austin that we'll talk about later, or Houston where there are significant contracts. But in most cities, that isn't the case. And so where you don't have collective bargaining, What police unions actually are in the real world is misconduct insurance. You pay your dues, and if you ever screw up, if you shoot somebody, if you beat somebody up, if you do something that gets you in trouble, the union is there with a phalanx of lawyers and lots of political pull, and they've given monies to all the city council members, and and they're there to have your back with all of their political clout. And so the idea that he has the same sort of messaging as a defense attorney is actually not very surprising, because defending police officers when they've engaged in serious misconduct for most of these unions is the only real well, thing that they do.
1: Engaged in misconduct.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: But no, no, you're right. That like it makes sense that it would be a similar playbook. What I guess we both are finding surprising is that. He's acknowledging that this isn't a blank check, right? That they can only do so much and that there is a line where they can't necessarily protect you. And I think that it might be where it's when you're engaging in intentional wrongdoing. So moving on. For years, Harris County won praise from reformers for a system that requires prosecutors to give formal approval of, before police officers can arrest suspects in the field. But this year, as part of legislative debates over a bill to limit arrests for low-level traffic violations, a new study revealed that fully 10% of all arrests in Harris County are for Class C misdemeanors, the lowest-level criminal offense where the maximum punishment is only a fine and not jail time. So, Scott, should we still consider the prosecutor pre-clearance system praiseworthy?
2: This actually gave me some heartburn, I have to admit, because I have praised this situation in Harris County for years as a best practice and recommended it to others. Harris County, Montgomery County, and El Paso County are the only three counties in Texas that require prosecutors to give pre-clearance for police before they make arrests. And those three counties in Texas are, in fact, to my knowledge, the only counties in the entire country where that's the case. So this is a Texas thing sort of an, a Texas experiment. And I've always thought it was a good idea. What we learned here is that it turns out they're only giving that pre-clearance for class B misdemeanors and above. And so what that means is often officers will be told, no, you can't arrest someone for the class B misdemeanor, but you can go ahead and arrest for the class C because that's not under my jurisdiction. So now, at least for me, I now have this fear that, well, maybe this system is encouraging more arrests for these petty offenses. And on the one hand, yes, at least they're not being charged with the higher crimes, but it is concerning that 10% of arrests are for Class C misdemeanors. That's a really large number.
1: No, it's, it's incredible if you think about it. It, uh, it makes you wonder if we're going to have this preclearance system, if it makes sense to have it apply just to all arrests. In general, I mean, especially if you think about how if there's a constitutional problem with the case for whatever reason, and that's why it was turned over, defendants who are charged with an offense of class B misdemeanor and above have access to counsel. They can have a court-appointed lawyer, and if you're charged with a class C, in some ways you might have a harder time challenging your case than you would. And while it's great that you're not facing more serious charges— um, you're still stuck dipping into your pocket, and or finding trying to find a way to finance.
2: That's your exactly case. right because you're only appointed a lawyer if the punishment, maximum punishment for the crime that you're charged with, includes jail time. Yes, and so Class C misdemeanors will have a maximum punishment of only a fine, and so you don't get a lawyer if you're indigent. And you're right. If there was a constitutional problem, if your rights were violated. You're a lot less likely to have any ability to react to that effectively, or to to really assert your rights in court without an attorney. So, so I, I'm not, I'm really not sure how I feel about this. I I do think that it's better to not be charged with a higher crime for sure. But you're right. Just because the DA doesn't deal with class C misdemeanors, they really probably should be advising officers on those arrests too. You're not going to have municipal court prosecutors. I mean they're doing could, that
1: there could be something where if, like, if they call in and they're asking about whether there's whether an arrest in a particular situation makes sense, and if they say no, then there is no arrest. It could be that simple or you know, there is no citation that could just that's the end of the situation. so
2: right. we would just have to extend that prosecutor's word to those class C misdemeanors, their authority because right now, they're saying okay they said i can't arrest for a class b but yay that means i can arrest for a class a c. c and so they go ahead and do it
1: yeah and they, that could be enough i mean who knows then that might be a situation where the law enforcement is then just calling prosecutors less often in these sort of borderline cases
2: right and i do think that that what we're seeing there is a situation where when someone wants to arrest for a class b but goes ahead and arrest for a class c I'll bet you most of those are contempt of cop situations. There's something where somebody has done something or said something that teed the cop off, and they just want to arrest him for whatever they can arrest him for, and they'd like it to be the bigger charge because that gets you more chits. But they'll really just arrest him for anything. So I feel like that there's some abusive practices that are probably being concealed by this process that that really deserve to be looked at more closely. All right, coming up, a game segment in which we discuss arrests for low-level marijuana possession and access to DNA testing in capital cases. But first, in Austin, the local police union and the city are wrapping up contract negotiations. A group of local activists, as it happens, including my wife, Kathy Mitchell, who's an organizer with the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, and Just Liberty's Sookie McMahon, have been pressing the parties to change portions of the existing contract which are hostile to reform. We'll also hear from Sam Sinyangwe, one of the founders of the anti-police brutality group Campaign Zero and a national leader in the movement for black lives. We'll publish both conversations in full in the days ahead, but for now, here are some key excerpts to give listeners a flavor of these debates.
3: everyone this is suki and yes i've been to several of these negotiation meetings with kathy and others and so kathy what exactly is
4: meet and confer so police fire and most recently ems unions can negotiate a contract with their city that can preempt conflicting state law Mm -hmm. so what that means is that for officers they can negotiate more generous pay and benefits for the rest of us A city could negotiate greater accountability and transparency than the state law framework. Better pay for a better force. At least that's the idea. Unfortunately, it hasn't exactly worked out that way.
3: Yeah, I've read that Austin's police officers are the highest paid in the state. Is that because of this process?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Every new contract, officers get more money or better benefits. After a few cycles, most Austin officers are now the highest paid in the state, They get a longevity bonus on top of their longevity step pay. For one hour of court time outside their normal shift, they get four hours at time and a half. They accrue sick and vacation leave at higher rates than would be allowed without this agreement. And they get to cash out nearly a year's worth of that time when they leave. Suki, you've been watching. Do you think the city side has fared as well?
3: Well... If the city negotiators are supposed to be making sure Austinites can trust that misconduct will be handled appropriately and our rights are being respected, we have a way to go. Okay, the current contract says, one, an officer can't be disciplined if the chief finds out about misconduct 180 days after it occurred. We saw that with the Beyond King case, right? Uh, Another provision prevents the chief from considering certain acts of past misconduct when evaluating new misconduct. Another provision will tie the hands of the civilian review panel and keep records of misconduct secret. When we first started going to these meetings, it almost seemed like both sides had already agreed on most of the contract. They were ready to make some minor changes around the edges, but there are many parts of the contract, like the 180-day rule, that weren't even up for discussion. But things started to change. Kathy, talk about what it took to even bring questions of accountability into the discussion.
4: Well, it all started with a strong demand from a bunch of local groups that the city manager's team actually ask for additional reforms that weren't part of the original negotiation plan. Mm-hmm. So we met with the negotiation team. Uh, we presented at council more than once, and we slowly built momentum for these kind of changes. And finally, the city team did actually lay some of them out in one of the meetings.
3: And then the other shoe drops.
4: Right. So, after laying out real reforms that would hold officers accountable, at the next meeting, the city announced that it would withdraw two of the most important reforms in order to get the union to talk about one of the reforms, Hmm. uh, the 180 day rule. And at that point, it became clear that most of what we had been calling for wasn't really even going to be part of a real discussion. So, that's why the end of this process is now shaping up differently from the last round. Uh, After looking at what we're paying for what we get, a whole lot of people are starting to say it's time to just stop, just go back to state law, let millions of dollars revert to general revenue, and start doing things differently.
2: Next up, here's an excerpt of my interview with Sam Sinyangwe, one of the co-founders of Campaign Zero, a relatively new organization which has emerged as the de facto policy arm of the national police accountability movement. We'll publish the full interview in a few days, but for now, here's Sinyangwe on why it's so politically difficult to hold police unions accountable. So one of the things that Campaign Zero has done that really has not been done as systematically is is critique the role of police unions and the role of police union contracts. Talk to me a little bit about how the traditional liberal base has reacted to this and and some of the tensions that come when you're asking, you know, accountability activists to mostly ally with the left to take on unions
0: and sort of stick their finger in that fan. Right, um, So it, it is one of these issues where you know, as we were looking at all of the ways in which uh, this system has enabled uh, or, or refused to hold uh, police accountable for police violence, what was clear was that police unions were playing a huge role in that process. They were playing a role uh, through legislation where they were putting in place policies uh, and laws you know, in 14 states, police officer bills of rights that made it much harder to investigate and hold officers accountable for misconduct, uh, they were playing that role in negotiating police union contracts that had provisions in them that you know, disqualified certain complaints. So if you submitted a complaint more than 60 days after a police officer beat you up, they could not investigate that complaint. Or if they took longer than 180 days to investigate the complaint, then they couldn't discipline the officer. Uh, or they'd give officers you know forty eight hour delay before they would even ask them for a statement about what happened. In some uh, states like Louisiana, it's a thirty day uh, delay before officers actually can be asked what happened. Wow. Um, so all of these things were happening sort of behind the scenes, uh, but really in plain sight, right? So the police union contracts, you know these are public documents but they hadn't been reviewed in a systemic way to identify, you know, what are the ways in which these contracts are making it harder to hold police accountable uh, so that those types of contract provisions could be targeted and removed. And so, you know, to your point about the left and some of the tension, I think this issue of police unions and police union contracts hasn't become a national issue until now, in part because uh, there is sort of a bipartisan consensus not to... Confront the police unions. So on the right, you have people like Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin, and others uh, who are taking on unions, trying to dismantle labor unions, doing all this terrible stuff, but they are exempting the police unions from all of that legislation. On the left, you have a a huge uh, influence of labor and, you know, to be clear, the labor unions do incredible work. They ensure, you know, middle class and fair wages for for workers. Um, But in the context of policing, they have operated in a much more nefarious way uh, by making it much harder to hold this institution that has the power to take life and and liberty, uh, allowing that institution to operate in ways that uh, completely evade accountability. And so we decided to take that on directly through our police union contract project and have been working to get those provisions removed in every city.
1: Now it's time to play Fill in the Blank, which is exactly what its name implies. <laughs> First up, Law enforcement agencies in Bear and Dallas counties will cease making arrests for small quantities of marijuana. So Scott, fill in the blank. Texas jurisdictions still arresting people for marijuana are
2: wasting tons of money. Oh my gosh, it's, it's it's hard to imagine at this point why anyone would think that it's a good idea to fill up your jails, take your police officers off the street all the things that go into prosecuting marijuana laws when every city is is struggling to cover its jail costs and, and the police force costs and the pensions are all busting the budgets and why you would volitionally choose to spend all this extra money on petty pot offenders when since 2007 – You've been allowed to simply give them a ticket instead of of take them to jail. It's simply beyond me. I'm not sure why it has taken 10 years for these jurisdictions to begin to use this authority, but I'm I'm glad they have.
1: Yeah. And so I was going to say imperiling their tax base. Yes. So not only does this not make sense in terms of their funding, but a person who is given a citation can report for work the next day and maintain employment. But someone who is brought into custody over what is sort of a very, very low level offense will, will be unable to report for work. And, and that does threaten their employment, which in turn threatens their ability to pay taxes.
2: Exactly, and the fine amounts for these offenses are—they're not getting just huge amounts of fine revenue from this. It costs them far more to enforce these laws than they're getting back from the defendants. All right, so moving on. Robert Pruitt was executed recently without DNA testing, having been performed that his attorneys hoped could prove his innocence while the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals once again denied Larry Swearingen's request for additional DNA testing in a capital case. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. These cases show Texas DNA testing statute is
1: misapplied. I think that if you were to look at the the text of these statutes as well as the legislative history, it's very clear that the Texas legislature intended to create a very broad right for post-conviction DNA testing. And that is not what is being applied or how it's being implemented by the courts. And their first duty in looking at these statutes is to like discern legislative intent and implement it. That is not what's happening here. And so what we've had over the years is just a series of volleys back and forth between the courts and the legislature about when DNA testing is appropriate and, I think this is another instance where we might see another revision to the DNA testing statute in response to recalcitrance from the court.
2: Right. Well, your comment about it going back and forth gets to my answer. I I, I would say that it is inexplicably in flux. So the first DNA testing statute we had was passed in 2001. And it was in reaction to the Court of Criminal Appeals denying DNA testing to a man who was eventually exonerated once the DNA testing was allowed. Since that time, we have gone back and forth over and over and over where the legislature passes a law, the Court of Criminal Appeals finds what they believe is a loophole to say that somebody shouldn't get DNA testing. And then the legislature comes back and changes the law and expands it to say, no, no, that person does get testing. And then the Court of Criminal Appeals goes back and finds some other little narrow loophole that they think says that they can deny it to somebody. And the, the legislature comes back again. We go back and forth. And it's become actually remarkably easy to pass some of these DNA testing laws at the legislature because they're getting used to having to correct the Court of Criminal Appeals. It's 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 almost becoming a habit now and I don't understand why we're still doing this in, in capital cases. I don't understand why the court of criminal appeals can look at this entire legislative history and still think, Oh no, we should have executions where there's DNA evidence that was never tested. What really? No one thinks that.
1: Yeah, no one. And, and it also it makes you wonder what's. What the prosecutor's interest is in opposing DNA testing in some of these cases, like either they have a conviction and a death sentence that's supported by the evidence, in which case the DNA testing is only going to confirm that or there is a problem and there's someone on the row who may be innocent and testing would exonerate that person and prevent the state from carrying out a miscarriage of justice. For
2: that matter, if there's someone on death row who is innocent of the crime of which they are convicted, that means that there's an actual killer out in the world who has gone free. And so there really is no prosecutorial interest in doing this, and yet they do it over and over again. So I agree. It's, it's, it's inexplicable to me. I don't understand why we keep having these fights. And I don't understand why the laws that we have passed so far are not being applied to Larry Swearingen in particular. <laughs>
1: So the last one is a new study out of Washington University in St. Louis found that the true costs of incarceration to society exceed a trillion dollars, more than 6% of the gross national product, and far more than the $80 billion spent on corrections each year. According to the author, more than half of the costs are borne by families, children, and community members who have committed no crime. So Scott, fill in the blank. But Be- the economy benefits when prisons
2: close, I think we would have to say, or vanish. Essentially, I I think this tells us what you know. many of us have been arguing for a while, that mass incarceration has far greater cost to society than just the amount that we spend on imprisonment. And I'm glad to see them quantify this. There's a, There's been a lot of effort over the years to quantify the costs of crime victimization. But I think this is the first effort I've seen to comprehensively quantify the costs of incarceration. And it was fascinating to me to learn that half or more of the costs are borne by families. I think anyone who's been around a family with an incarcerated family member can entirely see why that's the case. The loss of, you know, an income generator in the family, the Additional services that children might need. For that matter, just the costs of staying in touch on the telephone because the Mm -hmm. costs of, of the phone services are so high into prison. There are a lot of costs that are shucked off on some of the folks who are the very least able to pay it. So, you know, I think that this is further evidence that when we retrench on incarceration, when we scale back, close prisons and use those societal resources for something else, there's many many more benefits than just to the individuals who might have been released or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, no. I I was going to say when the economy benefits when prisons recreate themselves and and you know, it's not that far from disappearing in some ways that like either we need to find a way for prisons to configure themselves in a manner that equips people to re-enter society sort of like either, whether it be sort of similar to the system that they have in Germany where prisoners are equipped with job skills and a support network that allows them to resume productive lives, or, you know, maybe it's sort of an open prison model, which You know, we have in some places in Texas, in certain circumstances, where prisoners are able to have a job in the community during their incarceration um, that allows them to accrue an income.
2: Right, where they'll they'll jail them on the weekends, but let them go back to work during During the week week. sometimes on misdemeanor charges and stuff. That's right. I really like that idea. No one really thinks it's a great idea to have prisons just be warehouses. No one thinks that sending someone to just sit in a cell— With no rehabilitation or anything but the punishment of having just waited out your term is improving those folks. They're not leaving better. There's a lot of evidence that if they come in as a low-risk person, that actually makes them more likely to commit crimes when they come out. So. I really like that idea. I think that's that's where we need to go. And I think that if people really understood the true costs, you know, at the level that we're talking about here, six percent of gross domestic product. That's that's an amazing sum. Mm,
1: that's extraordinary.
2: Well now it's time for a rapid fire segment we call the last hurrah. Mandy, are you ready?
1: Ready to go. In the wake of recent reforms, Dallas's police union now has a minority of members on the board that oversees its pension. Is that a problem?
2: The police union thinks it is, but it's probably a solution. The fact is, when the union members were the majority of the board, they voted themselves all these extra pension benefits that ended up nearly bankrupting the fund. And so this was really something they had to do. Austin's crime lab has suffered a series of scandals, including having to shut down its DNA lab over alleged incompetence. Is it time for the city to make the crime lab independent like they did in Houston?
1: Absolutely. I think that we are well overdue for an independent crime lab, both to preserve the integrity of the evidence and the practices. Houston has been able to implement a number of programs that make the crime lab constantly pursuing more accurate testing of the evidence, and that is something that I think every jurisdiction in Texas needs to be doing. Last one, bipartisan amendments to curb federal asset forfeits are passed the U.S. House of Representatives, and Just Liberty has launched an email action to ask Senators Cornyn and Cruz to support these amendments. So what are the chances for these bipartisan forfeits? Can they pass Congress?
2: Well, I would not have necessarily thought so until these amendments passed in a bipartisan way in the House of Representatives. You could have knocked me over with a feather when that happened. And so now that that has happened, now that we have these bipartisan reforms and, and momentum, I guess if Congress wants to pass anything this year, this may be what there is. So, so let's hope. I'm, I'm more optimistic I am that the Senate will pass it than, than I am that the President will support it. But it's gotten further than I would have thought already. We're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty.
1: And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service.
2: We'll be back next month with another edition of the Reasonably Suspicious podcast. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.
1: And just a special shout out goes to Paul Kerbagian, my friend in New York, who's been amazingly supportive with this podcast. All
2: right. Well, I'm glad someone's listening. He may be.